Romans chapter 8, one of the presidents I would love to meet is our 30th president, Calvin Coolidge. He was an introvert, extreme introvert, a man of very few words. Once he was challenged, someone said to him, I bet I can get you to say more than two words. And his reply was, you lose. He also said once, I've never been hurt by what I have not said. And he also said this, no one ever listened themselves out of a job. That's a good one. He was known for answering questions with questions. Once he was asked why he answers questions with questions, to which he replied, why not? Cheap humor, sorry. Paul was not a man of few words, especially in writing. But at the end of Romans 8, after he's taken us to the heights of our benefits in Christ Jesus, he answers life's deepest questions with questions, unanswerable questions. Paul dares the Romans, the Roman church that is, and he dares us this morning to ask tough, deep questions. He starts with an overarching one in verse 31. Let's look at verse 31. This is the overarching question. And then he'll ask four more. What then shall we say to these things? What things? Everything that has preceded that verse. Not just Romans 8, but all the way back to Romans chapter 3, 21, where we see those great words, but God. But God sent his son Jesus to justify us. And Paul is asking here, what are we going to say? What words would do the trick? In other words, so what? What practically will change in your life, in my life, as a result of Romans 8, 1 through 30? And Paul's heart erupts. Paul is daring us to ask the tough questions. Paul is daring us to put the gospel to the test. Paul said earlier, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And he's saying here that any questions that you have, that I have, can be put up against the gospel test. Hard questions can be asked. Paul is challenging us to bring our darkest failures our sins, our brokenness, our doubts, our pain, our physical pain, the times when you've wailed in the middle of the night because you've lost a loved one, the times when you have wailed in the middle of the night because of physical pain or emotional pain, the times when you've wondered, is this all even true? Paul said, bring all of those to the table. Paul asks, how will you challenge everything I have just said. And once again, Paul could have just left us hanging. He could have ended Romans 8 in a satisfactory way right here by saying, what else can be said? But thankfully, he gives us some of the most glorious verses in all of Scripture, some of the most glorious words ever uttered. He asks four unanswerable questions. And these are unanswerable questions that we should be asking ourselves all week long in our lives. Paul answers his question, 
what shall we say to these things, to these glorious things, to the heights of the benefits that we have in Christ Jesus that he's articulated in Romans 8 with an unanswerable question. Look at the second half of 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Notice that Paul doesn't ask who is against you. Because there's a lot of people against you. There's a lot of things against me. Our own sins are against us. Many times the world's against us. Many times even our own family can be against us. But he doesn't ask who is against you. His question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? It wouldn't be good news if he hadn't left the part of God on there. It wouldn't be good news. That would be bad news if it were just about us. Paul asks an entirely different question than who's against you. He asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul isn't saying that on your own strength that you can take on the world. Paul is saying that the only way that God is actually for you is when you're being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. That's what it says. God is in your corner. Did you hear what I just said? God is in your corner. Play it out practically. Play it out. If God is for, put your name in that blank. Who can be against you? If God is for you, if God is for Chuck, who can be against me? If God is for you, to be against you, if God is for you, would be to be against God himself. That's what he's saying. Huge statement. That is why Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon that is fashioned against us will succeed. You will refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment when you are being conformed to the image of Christ. Isaiah 40, more hard questions are asked. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He is the creator of the universe. If God is for us, who can be against us? I don't know what you're facing this week. Put your name in that blank and be a nothing but Jesus person. Be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. But play it out from the opposite perspective. If you are against someone whom God is for, you are setting yourself up against God. Now, I don't want to take this too far, but men, if your wife is being conformed to the image of Christ and you take up against her, you are coming up against a daughter of the king. You are coming up against God. If you women are disdaining your husband, if you are hateful towards him, if he can't do anything right, and he is one who is being conformed to the image of Christ, you are setting yourself up against God. Flip it around. Flip it around. People have put themselves up against the church at times, even up against our church. If God is for reach church, 
Who can be against Reach Church? Who can do anything to us? Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. All you need to do is be still. Who will stand against us? Jesus even said the gates of hell themselves will not prevail against us, against Reach Church. Paul answers his own question with an unanswerable question. What shall we say to all of these amazing benefits of Christ Jesus? And his answer is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul asks again, what shall we say? Or he answers again. And here in verse 32, he gives a second question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's asking, if God gives his only son to you, to me, how will he not also give us everything that we need to be conformed to the image of Christ? How will God withhold anything from us? He's already given us his most treasured possession. There's a show on TV that depicted the shooting of two police officers by a 15-year-old boy. And so they're at the hospital, and the two police officers are fighting for their lives, and they die. The 15-year-old does not die. is also shot. He's in critical condition. And sure enough, the police officer is an organ donor. So they go to the mother. The mother has just lost two sons, and they ask her if she is willing for one of her sons, who is a match, to donate his liver to his 15-year-old killer, because he needs it. Now, that's an impossible question, and it's a profound question, but it doesn't really get to the heart of what God did for us when he gave us his only son, because the reality would be if only one of the police officers was shot, and the brother was healthy, and the brother's at the hospital, and that 15-year-old killer still needs a liver, and the mother decides to sacrifice her healthy son and give that liver to the 15-year-old shooter. That's closer to the heart of what God does for us when he gives us his son. Let me put it differently. Let's say you're on social media and you see that there's a child who needs a heart transplant. And you take your child, your only child, your treasured possession, and you say, I will give that heart, my child's heart, I will sacrifice their heart so that this stranger can live. We would never do that. It's preposterous. But yet, that is what God does for us. He answers his own question if God gave you the most precious gift of his son to save your souls, do you really think he's going to begrudge you of anything you really need? Do you really think he's going to give up on you? Do you really think that even though he already gave his son, that he's now going to say the deal's off? Paul says, I don't think so. If you look at verse 29 there, Paul uses this word foreknow, those whom he foreknew. 
those he foreknew, and many times we get that wrong. We say, well, that means that God looks down the corridor of time and sees who's going to choose him, who's not going to choose him. Those God foreloved, those God set his heart on from eternity past, setting his heart on you if you are in Christ. He's not going to give up on you. There is nothing we can do to make God love us more or make him love us less. In eternity past, God didn't say, I will love them, but I will never give my son. He said, I will love them. I will give my son for them. He determined in eternity past, oh, how he loves us so much. We sing that song, I will give my son for them. He doesn't love us the way we love others. We are conditional creatures. We conditionally love. He loves us unconditionally. He sets his affection on us. He foreknows us before we're even born. He loves us. Paul says, when you think God is abandoning you, go to the foot of the cross and look up. Look up. Paul is saying, we never graduate beyond the gospel message. We never get beyond that. Paul is saying, here is the cross again. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain is loss and poor contempt on all of my pride. Paul is saying, God gave us Christ, the most valued possession of all. Nothing compares to him. Nothing but Jesus. We've devalued him. We've said that nothing but Jesus isn't enough. We've said his grace isn't enough. Paul is saying God set the bar so high when he gave us Christ. Everything, Paul said in Philippians, is worthless. Is a pile of you-know-what, is what Paul said compared to knowing Christ Jesus. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it as garbage so that I could gain Christ. I'm going to press this home just a little bit more. There was an American missionary to China, and he had been ministering there for years but was caught running a house church. And so he and his wife and his two children were arrested, placed under house arrest, and they were scheduled to finally go home. And so the soldier came to their home and they said, plane's ready. You can go, but you can only take 200 pounds with you. And so they began arguing over their possessions. They had been there for years. They were looking at books and clothes and special gifts and things like that. And so they finally agreed and they tightly packed the 200 pounds. So here they were ready, the mother, the father, the two little kids. The process was over. And so the soldier said, ready to go? Yes. Did you weigh everything? Yes, we weighed everything. Did you weigh the children? No. Weigh the children. Suddenly, the 200 pounds of stuff meant nothing because the only thing they could take home were their most treasured possessions, their children. God has given us his most treasured possession, his best, what more can he give us than his son? Paul asks, 
what shall we say to these things of Romans 8? And then he answers his own question again. Look at 8, 33 to 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Bringing charges in verse 33 and being condemned in verse 34 are slightly different. Verse 33 is basically the first, the first phase of the trial, the charges. And then verse 34 is the judgment, the condemnation, the verdict. Who can bring the charges? Who from the outside can charge you with anything? Charging you would be like charging Christ. You have the righteousness of Christ. I didn't say it, Paul did. When we are charged, we can be so free as to say, you know what, you're right, I'm guilty. And if you really knew me, like my spouse knows me, you would know just how guilty I am. You can, are free to say that, free to say you're sorry, free to seek forgiveness, free to change, because who can bring any charge against the perfect righteousness of Christ Jesus, which is ours in him? Who can condemn us? Many times our own hearts condemn us. Our own inconsistencies condemn us. Our own sin patterns condemn us. But Christ Jesus has paid the price. In other words, the case is closed. Not because of us, not because of anything we have done, but because justice has already been served. The question Paul asks is a lot like the question that Jesus asked the woman who was called in adultery. So the woman is called in adultery, and there's older men and younger men. They pick up stones. They're going to execute her according to the law. And along comes Jesus, and he begins to write in the sand. And John tells us that one by one, they dropped their rocks. They dropped their stones. Why? Why did they do that? What did he write in the sand? It's interesting that it was the older men first who dropped the stones. It was the older men first because they'd lived long enough to know how sinful they were maybe. And then the younger men followed and then it's just Jesus and this woman caught in adultery. And what is it that Jesus asks her? He asks her, where are your accusers? Where are they? Isn't there even one? And the woman says, no, not one. They're gone. Paul's saying the same thing. Even you, condemning you, will not hold up. Why? Paul gives the answer in the rest of this verse. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised, is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. When we're being accused, even now, we have an advocate. Jesus is interceding for us. He's praying for us. The Holy Spirit of Christ is putting into words those things that don't come to us when we pray, the words we can't put together. Praying for us. Crying out, it is finished. I paid the price for them. What higher court is there than the court of heaven? 
We cannot be de-justified. It's a done deal. Clothed in His righteousness alone. Do you mean it when you sing that or not? In Christ alone, your grace is enough. Who can condemn? No one. Paul asks, what shall we say to these incredible, glorious mountain peaks, these amazing benefits that we have in Christ Jesus? And he answers it again with an unanswerable question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Man, Paul had been beaten. Paul had been scoffed at. Paul had been shipwrecked. He had been whipped. He had been imprisoned. He had been gossiped about. He had been scorned. He doesn't bury his head in the sand. He knows pain. And these Roman Christians would know pain. It would cost them their lives, many of them, to be Christians. The persecution in the early church under Nero was horrible. Unspeakable things happened to them. This was real life. And Paul covers all the bases. And he's saying, cover all your bases. Look around. Look around and ask yourself, what will separate me from the love of Christ? What trouble? What hardship? What pain? What will separate us? What opposition? What stress? What uncertainty? What finances? What anxiety? What enemies will separate you? None. None. Life is hard. Life is brutal. Paul even draws on Psalm 44 that we are like sheep being led to the slaughter. And many of us feel that a lot. But remember who Paul is writing to, some who would actually be led to be slaughtered. Who can separate those who have been bonded to Jesus, those who are hidden in Christ Jesus? No one can separate us. Nothing, not even death, not your own accusations, not even your sin can separate you from the love of Christ. And Paul says something incredible, if that were possible, in verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That phrase, we are more than conquerors, is actually just one Greek word. It's this one super word, and Paul adds a prefix to it. He adds a hyper to it. He basically says we are hyper-conquerors, super-conquerors, not through our own power, but through Jesus Christ who loved us. In verse 35 and all through this section, Paul wants us to line up our enemies. Line them up, he says. Paul says, line them up when they're bearing down against you. Make sure you remember that enemy and this enemy, this pain and that pain, this sin and that sin. Line them up, Paul says. None of them can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Forget the past. Forget the sin of the past. It's forgiven. It's gone. You have Christ's righteousness. He wants the tough questions asked. 
But he answers by saying there's a love that won't let us go. There's a love that holds us firmly, not a conditional one, but an unconditional one. God is the creator of our faith. We see that in Romans 8, 29 to 30, from start to finish. God undergirds our faith from start to finish. God deepens our faith from start to finish. The eagles finally did it. They won the Super Bowl. And I was caught up in it. You know, I've been a fan since I was a little boy. I mean, a lot of times I'll make fun a little bit. And I do think it's a fair comparison. If you think about sports and how excited we get, and then you think about our faith, I'm not even talking about volume. I'm talking about just inside of us. You know, what's inside of us when it comes to our faith compared to some of these other things? I challenge myself with it. And so I've been a fan since I was a little boy, and I even saw Reggie White speak at the Billy Graham crusade back in 1992. And that day, Jerome Brown, who was also an Eagle, died. Reggie White announced it to the entire veteran stadium. And it was deeply emotional. Deeply emotional. Died in a car accident. My brother would die the next year in a car accident. And it's been interesting this past week to listen to sports talk radio in the car and to hear grown men, and I'm not being critical, I was getting filled up watching the Philly special, that little video over and over again, and just seeing the determination and seeing the courage. It was so unexpected, you know, but I didn't take it quite this far. I mean, guys are calling in and saying this is the best moment of their lives. There was guys who went to the parade and they actually took the ashes of loved ones and spread them along the parade route. I'm not, I'm not criticizing it. I understand it. One guy described the joy at the parade and said, there's no Republican here, there's no Democrat, there's no black, no white, there's, you know, there's uh, no arguing here. There's no different races, different ideas. We're all one in the Eagles. <laughs> God and football. And yet even now as I'm talking about it, even as exciting as it was, it wears off, doesn't it? I mean, it wears thin. There was a joy all week, and there's still a joy. It's palpable, but it wanes a little bit. Fast forward to Friday night here at Reach Church. We had 150 guests at our Night to Shine prom, all with special needs. I was able to greet each one as they walked through the door. And I got filled up last year when I did that. And it's interesting, the, the child or the teen that, that kind of gets to me, it's interesting to see which one really gets to me. And this year it was a young woman sitting in a wheelchair and her feet are shackled to the bottom of the wheelchair in a prom gown, not really aware of what's going on. Her night to shine. Her night to be an honored guest here at Reach Church. But I also saw the tiredness and the pain in the parents' faces juxtaposed against the pure, unadulterated joy that we had over in that gymnasium. The music was playing. That's what freedom in Christ looks like, by the way. 
That's what freedom in Christ leads to. Many churches couldn't do that. Too much legalism. But that's what it leads to. Those kinds of things. For a night, all the guests, and even you, even the hundreds of volunteers who were here were filled with unadulterated joy, knowing we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, but even that joy ends. He who spared not his only son, will he not give you all things? Paul doesn't simply ask, doesn't God give you all things? Because he doesn't give us everything we want. The all things Paul is talking about, I will give you all things, all things will be yours, is in light of eternity, is everything that Jesus gets, we get. In other words, God will give us whatever all things we need here on earth to conform us to the image of Christ Jesus. And that's a scary prayer to pray. I surrender all, whatever it takes, Lord, conform me to the image of Christ. That is a very difficult prayer to pray. And a very difficult, narrow way, narrow path to live in. He prepares us to be glorified with Jesus, like Jesus. Preparing us for all things. To bring many sons and daughters to glory. What are these all things ultimately? All things, like I said, is everything that Jesus gets, we get. In other words, Paul is saying, why are you setting your minds on earthly, temporal things, on such small things, fleshly things, when God has destined, predestined to give you all things as you're conformed to the image of Christ? No eye has seen, no ear has heard. Neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Paul is not interested in splitting theological hairs for people, Romans, who are going off to be eaten by lions. Paul is not splitting theological hairs or debating. He's giving them gospel hope. Gospel hope that you will have all things. For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. If all things were created for Jesus, all things were created for those who were conformed to become the image of Christ. When Paul says in verse 32, he gave all things, he gave his son he who gave his son, will he not give us all things? That's what he's talking about. In verse 30, a little bit of controversy, verses 29 to 30. And, you know, I don't want to really dig into that too much this morning. There's Sunday school classes for that, and we're going to be hitting Romans 9. So we have plenty of time for that. But I do notice one thing. Notice glorified is in the past tense. We're not glorified yet. We're not glorified yet, but yet Paul puts it in the past tense. Why? Because it's a done deal from start to finish. As surely as you've been justified, as surely as you've been called, as surely as you've been predestined, and as surely as God foreloved you, foreknew you, you will be glorified if you are in Christ Jesus. Imagine the feeling you had 
when the Eagles won. If you're not a fan, imagine the feeling you had when one of your teams won. That feeling that a lot of people had for a few days. Multiply that infinitely. Infinitely. And it doesn't end after a few days. It doesn't end when they don't win in the years to come. Because he never stops winning. If God is for us, who can be against us? Think about those moments of joy at the night to shine prom. Those moments when there was no special needs. Only kings and queens shining among us. Multiply that infinitely. Multiply that feeling infinitely and you begin to get a taste of all things that Paul is speaking about. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What will you say to these things? How will your life change because of these glorious promises? Imagine that you're in your yard and you see a sparrow walking along. The sparrow's like 10 pounds. He's going to die it. Sparrow's walking along and you, you ask the sparrow, you say, you know, why aren't you flying? And he says, flying, I need to lose weight. I've never flown. I can't fly. Then you say, are you crazy? You're a bird. You can fly. No wonder you have so much weight on you if you've never flown before. And then you say, what is your name, bird? And he turns and looks at you. He turns and looks at me, and he says, my name is Chuck. Put your own name in there. Why aren't you flying? Why aren't you soaring up like eagles, mounting on wings, mounting on the peaks of Romans 8? This should change your life. This freedom, we should be the freest people on planet Earth. We should be the most joyful people. We should be the least judgmental people. People should be pressing their noses up against the window to see what's going on in here. Because people should come in here on Sunday and not leave heavier, but should leave lighter. So many times the church makes people heavier. It makes them feel heavier inside and more burdens. You should leave here feeling lighter, feeling freer. Romans 8, what about you? What will you say to these things?